Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is your host, John Landis, and tonight we have the first of two uh, parts of interviews that we did with Joel Chris. Uh, Joel Chris is a member of the Hamptons community um, and uh, is also a member of the board of the Jam of the Jam Session, which produces the Hamptons Jazz Fest and which produces this radio show. We are very, very fortunate to have Joel Chris, uh, Joel Chris among us uh, for the things that he does and uh, for the jazz that he knows, um, for the people that he has uh, met over the years and the stories that he has to tell. And a lot of those stories uh, show up in this uh, interview. Uh, fascinating tale, Joel's, of really a life propelled by passion for music. Talk about a guy who followed his passions and took him into a career that has spanned many years of working with jazz clubs, jazz musicians, festivals around the world, gotten to know many, many fine musicians. And the music that we'll play, interspersed with the interview, also uh, part and parcel of the people that he has come, come to know over the years, uh, people like McCoy Tyner and... Uh, Charlie Christian and George Benson and Art Blakey and Phil Woods and Johnny Griffin, Pat Martino, Sonny Rollins, Pharaoh Sanders. Uh, amazing career, really interesting storyteller, interesting guy, and still totally vibrant and uh, full of life and uh, full of re responsibility uh, for helping others, Clayus Brondahl, Bill O'Connell, and others put together the Hamptons Jazz Fest, and we'll talk more about that later. But let's listen now to part one of the interview with Joel Chris. So this is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and today we have the good fortune of talking to my good buddy, Joel Chris. Hi, Joel. Hey, John. <laughs> How are you feeling today? I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, so yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, and uh, you're very welcome. It's our, it's our good fortune. And of course, we're also here with Rafael Alvarez, who's recording this for us. So Joel, it uh, again, it's it's uh, special good fortune because you are on the board with me and others, and work with us on the Hamptons Jazz Fest and the Jam Session, and have yes. for the last few years, which is really uh, a pleasure. Yeah, uh, it's a f great good fortune of mine to have come at the right time, uh, right time for me, yeah. because I've lived out here for a while on the east end of Long Island, and I got to know Klaus a little bit from his days at Bayburger, a place you owned and allowed uh, the jam session to happen on a regular basis. And uh, I used to go down, but never really thought of uh, being involved in producing or promoting jazz on the east end of Long Island because I had enough to do running my book booking agency and production company and Right. And over the years, a lot of uh, a lot of record company work, and then all of a sudden, uh, it came a time in my life where I, 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 it was time for me to make a change in a, a career path change, and I was out here, started talking to Clay's, became familiar with who you were, um, and from there, you invited me to a um, a board meeting. Yeah, and uh, I I don't think. During that board meeting, I, I thought you were going to, I didn't think you were going to invite me to participate, but uh, that's what happened. And uh, I don't know, that was probably three years ago. It was one of those yeah, situations. It reminds me of uh, 
my well, my former life I was with a biotech company, and I uh, interviewed this uh, my CEO. I was general counsel. My uh, he brings me this woman to interview, and so I do a typical Landis interview. You know, lots of questions, good good natured, but you know some zingers. Um, and I find out later she'd already been hired. <laughs> and the reason it reminds me is because I think Clea said, "Oh, John, you're going to have Joel over. He's he's on the board." Oh, really? <laughs> That, um, you knew before I, I did, uh, but it was uh, you knew before I, I did. Is the point? I, uh, yeah. I, it was a, a nice surprise. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to lead to, but here we are, three years later, yeah. and uh, we. I think you read my mind at some point, and uh, and we came up with this idea of the Hamptons Jazz Festival. Uh, that's a bit of a uh, a winding road story. But uh, here we are uh, planning our second year. Yeah. And it is, for me, exactly what I want and need to be doing at this point in life. So somehow uh, the stars uh, aligned in a way that uh, has made my life brighter. Well, I have to say, that's, uh, it's music to all of our ears. And having you as a part of this has, has really taken us up uh, another level and the reason uh there are myriad reasons but i think one thing i really have noticed about you is that you're one of those people who developed a career based on your passion and you found that passion early on and um and i think that's really emblematic of of you because um you know from what i've read and what i've known from talking to you and your background um and i want you to talk about that how that passion for music morphed over time but took you through these myriad paths to a point where you had one of the leading booking jazz agencies in the world and you were booking 500 to 600 dates a year and uh anyway let uh, riff a little bit about that for us yeah. because what and my point is that you still clearly have that yeah. after this long career which you sound and now say you've you know it's developed into something else working with us which is fantastic but you still have that same passion which just comes through everything you do and talk about yeah thanks john um the music uh bit me hard and strong early on in my life I had no clue what that meant to have a uh a deep interest in music um i didn't know that it could turn into anything involved in, in building a life around it. But uh, it came from friends in in uh, junior high, high school, college. And this uh, was around the city, and you had friends who were into music, and your first interests were, were, were rock, and uh, roll. rock and roll. Yeah, except I grew up in a home with uh, a very uh, uh, creative father. And uh, so there was always opera and, and symphonic music, orchestral music around the house. I mean, anytime we moved, he had his little uh, uh, Fisher amplifier and a couple of speakers. Those That got in the house or, or in the apartment before a bed did. And so there was always music playing around the house. And he, he liked jazz music pre-bebop. Right. Uh, I think Charlie Parker lost him. But he grew up. In the late 30s and 40s, listening to swing music, Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman, uh, a lot of the singers, uh, 
Marlena Dietrich, got a, people like art songs, Kurt right. Wilde, things like that. Right. So there's always music in the house. Always music. Yeah. Yeah. And later on in in his life, and when I was in high school, uh, we had uh, we had steady listening sessions. We had a nice kind of sunken den with a stereo in it, and uh, I can see it. And he'd be playing Wagner, and I said, uh, "Well, if you like this, you should like Jimi Hendrix." Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> how they were related. Did it I work? guess no. <laughs> just the power of the yes, music. Yes. Uh, and he has patience with me uh-huh. because he didn't know much about what I knew, and I right. didn't. I knew a little bit about what he knew, but it. And there was always uh, alcohol involved. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he has always had a scotch in the hand, in his hand. And did you ever go to a concert with your dad? Well, as a young kid, grow, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, the first place I lived uh, was uh, uh, Eastern Parkway, Brooklyn, one seventy-five Eastern Parkway, where I went to uh, grammar school, and uh, right. In the museum, in the Brooklyn Museum, they had a symphony orchestra. So he wanted to go there. I think they played on Sundays most of the year. So, you know, when my mother needed a break from her, the kids, she would say to my father, you know, spend the day with Joel. And he'd take me to uh, to the symphony orchestra across the street at the... At the Brooklyn Museum, either that or he'd take me to some, you know, uh, I don't know, Man for All Seasons or so, some sort of movie. Right, that, that lots I, of music in it. Uh, or things I or wouldn't not. understand. It was, his, right. it was his day, I was just tagging along. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, we went to some symphonic concerts and also they were, they were kind of liberal Jewish first generation. Uh-huh. Uh, New Yorkers, and so they went to folk music. So we went to Pete Seeger and uh, the Weavers. And so you've seen lots of lots of live live music. I mean, in mm. your time, I, thousands of live Th- music occasions, which you still right. avidly attend. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So from the time I was young, I was going, but it wasn't a regular thing. He'd take me to the symphony or- yeah. orchestra to but a folk thing. But then you started thing. going to, to New York with your buddies, right? And, and, and hanging we, out. We would we would actually follow bands around uh, the tri-state area, and even further than that, when we got our driver's license, we had some favorite. We were really into country rock music uh-huh. in in early high school. Right. So that it was all all the offspring. Bands from uh, like Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, one of the things I I remember from reading about uh, some of your um, biographical material is um, how when you started go to some of the jazz clubs, you would just knock on people's doors. You'd mm-hmm. like go down to the green room or the dressing room or whatever and just like mm-hmm. make friends with these guys. Yeah, and they were perfectly happy to have this kid come in and make <laughs> friends with them. And that uh, was some of the ways you. You made some of your early contacts, right? It surprised me. I was I was always ready to get kicked out, uh, but as I learn and I and it's true to this day, uh, jazz is a social music, and that not only means that it's got folk roots and blues roots, but the people involved 
whether they're openly uh, uh, social or just um, they want to talk about their music, they will start a conversation with, or if I started the conversation, they would pick up on it immediately. That very few people said, hey, I'm tired, uh, yeah. get out of here. Right. So what happened, the early days of that, it was a friend who was living in Great Neck at the time. Our parents, my parents had moved us out of Brooklyn and moved us to the suburbs for the sake of a, a better education, which wasn't better. It was the, the schools in Brooklyn were better. Were better, yeah. Um, old-fashioned teachers right. taught us how to spell and taught, taught us how to uh, do a little research even as kids. Yeah. They always, they had clubs for everything, you know. Awesome. Um, and, but they moved us out to Great Neck. I met a, a friend in sixth grade. His name is Bobby Stein. And amazingly enough, he and I have become, have re, reunited, and he came to the Robbie Coltrane show at SAC. Southampton Art Center, which was just last uh, September. Yeah, and I we think. did a, a date for the Alice and John yep. Coltrane house. And this man who's my age now, uh, we went to sixth grade together. Uh, and he came from a wealthier family, and he went to private schools, even though the great next schools were yeah. renowned for uh, being uh, high-achieving schools. But um, he... And in, in private schools, they learned things quicker than we did. And so he came back, and he had figured out how to get free LPs from the... Record labels, record by, by, by telling them he was reviewing, <laughs> he was reviewing uh, music for yeah. their, their high school newspaper. Right. Little, he had in his house in Kings Point, Great Neck, about 5,000 LPs by the time he was 14 years old. <laughs> was what, all, all eclectic, all over the place? Yeah, or, all yeah. over the place. Uh -huh. um, yeah, we'd go there and listen. And the, the things he turned me on to... And I remember some of them, like the Beach Boys, who who I love, but they did a very creative kind of art song thing called Surf's Up. Uh -huh. And it's kind of, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an enjoyable record, but uh, the songwriting is more complicated than on some of the others. I mean, Brian Wilson is a genius of a songwriter. Yeah. Um, but I remember us sitting around for weeks listening to Surf's Up. <laughs> um, also, John Prine. Uh -huh. Great the John Prine. The first, the first John Prine record. And then we went, and what would happen is we sit around and listen, and then we he would find out that they were playing at the bitter end. Right. And we'd go see, we went to see John Prine when there was three people in the audience <laughs> at the bitter end. The first record had just come out. I didn't know who any of them, right. I don't think he did either. He pretended uh -huh. like he, he knew where we were going. But we hopped on the Long Island Railroad and ended up in the city. We were probably 16, 15, 16 at the time. And then one summer, he took me, he said, oh, there's this really great, piano player we got to go hear him at the village vanguard and i i don't I, I don't think i ever heard of the villa village vanguard at when i was 15 or 16 right and we walked in it's in a basement a dark basement and they had like velvet curtains 
where you at the time and you'd have to like check in with the door person and then they'd let you through the velvet curtains and i and we didn't have to pay because he got tickets from his newspaper at his high school yeah uh so <laughs> he got us in for free bobby i'm sorry i'm talking about you so much that wasn't my purpose but I, it's a pleasure for me to remember these things um and it was keith jarrett keith jarrett charlie hayden uh-huh Paul Motion and Dewey Redmond, <laughs> none of whom I knew, but I s- we sat down and ordered a ginger ale, and I thought I was in a different world. Uh-huh. I had no idea what, what I was hearing. I couldn't make sense of it at all, but I could feel that the people in the audience and the musicians on the stage they were they were at a different level of consciousness. Than and you I were had. only on a ginger ale. Oh yeah, I know. I'm sure we we smoked a lot of weed in those days, right? <laughs> weed and ginger ale is one weed, of my favorites. Right, right. And I don't. Yeah, we didn't drink at all in high school, uh-huh. but we smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> um. So and then from there that summer, we went to see, um, Pat Martino. He was he had a two records out at the time. Well, he had two new new records out at the time one called consciousness and one called live and i thought i had heard a lot of good guitar players even at 15 or 16 because right. growing up around carlos santana and uh and jerry garcia clapton. and eric clapton and jeff beck and jimmy page yeah. uh, i thought i had heard everything the guitar could say uh but pat being a jazz guitar player, had a different language. Thank you. 
The Jam Session Radio Hour is supported by Bayard Fenwick as a sponsor and underwriter, as part of the Terry Cohen team located at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate. Bayard is well versed in the residential real estate market from Bridgehampton to East Hampton to Amagansett to Montauk. Bayard believes there are three parts to the value of a property: land value, improvements made to the property, and an emotional component. You can reach Bayard Fenwick at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate at 631-324-7575. That's 631-324-7575. The Jam Session Radio Hour is also supported by Oza Sabbath Architects of Bridgehampton, New York. Oza Sabbath Architects both designs and builds homes, believing that a well-designed home suffuses our lives with the essential elements of balancing and recharging. Oza Sabbath Architects can be reached at ozasabbath.com. That's O-Z-A-S-A-B-B-E-T-H dot com. And at 631-808-3036. That's 631-808-3036. You're listening to WLIW-FM 88.3 on your dial in Southampton, New York. 96.9 as you get into Western Suffolk. And also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour. And tonight we're bringing you an interview, first part of a, of a two-part interview with Joel Chris. So once you had these experiences of going to see Keith Jarrett and that bunch and Pat Martino, and also loving the guitar yourself, which right. I want you to talk about um, a little bit, was did that totally send you down the jazz pathway, you and Bobby, at that point? Um, yes, but it, it didn't happen, uh, it didn't, it happened quickly, but not, it didn't make me forget or, or I, the other music I right. loved. I, I Like the other day when I got in your car, you were playing, uh, um, The Grateful Dead. Yeah, it never comes off, we have satellite radio in the car uh-huh. and it never comes off <laughs> the Dead channel because the car is the place where I listen to Dead. Right. Uh. Car equals Dead. Right. And uh, my wife doesn't change the station, <laughs> and I don't change the station. And they have interview shows uh, on the Dead Station by a uh, Big Steve, yeah. who was a who was J- one of Jerry's best friends, and uh-huh. he was in charge of all the all the uh, the cargoes and the trucks and the touring. How many uh, Dead shows would you say you've seen? I, I had I did not see a lot of Dead you shows. A deadhead. I, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't a deadhead right. back in those years. You were seeing all the jazz, and you were working your, your butt off. But you know, I think the dead the dead shows intimidated me as a young person. I I saw a lot of dead shows 
more as an adult, more in the 80s. Uh-huh. Uh, but a lot less than, probably less than 10. Right. Some, somewhere The same as me. Yeah. Eight to 10 sh- dead uh-huh. shows in my life. Unforgettable. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I actually saw more like hot tuna shows. Uh-huh. And I don't know whether dead shows um, intimidated me. I think it was the whole dead head. Right. And and whirling dervishes right. and LSD. Yeah, that, um, was, that wasn't your bag. It was. Oh, like, <laughs> but it, but um, I think I think even under the influence of certain drugs, I wasn't sure that I was capable of handling handling it uh, handling it when I was a teenager in, in my twenties. Interesting. That yeah. you would say intimidating. I, I you know? because. Being as high as a lot of those audience members were, yeah, and probably knowing that I didn't have the confidence, okay, not so to go with it where they were. I was going to get high level too. Of paranoia. So yeah. it, was, it was a matter of like being in a crowded concert hall with ecstatic music. Have you ever felt that way with uh, any uh, jazz concerts? Have you ever been intim- intimidated by the crowd or the feel or? I'm sure you know you have so, had so many experiences, but that's so yeah. O- only uh, frightened like hell of producing shows, producing shows where you were where, where I was in control of it yeah. in, in in very very unstable situations <laughs> in India. Yeah. Oh my gosh. In in the Caribbean, uh-huh. in Brazil. Well, you're a brave you're a brave cat because you've you've put on festivals all over the world, right? And you've worked with you know, people with that you work with all over the world. Right. Speaking all these different languages. I mean, Raphael, I'm sure you've done the same too, but it's, it's pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. And I would book And that's been sh- one of your specialties, is, are these Yeah, it, it became something I really enjoyed doing because it kind of tested my limits. Yeah. And it became something that I figured out a way, uh, different ways to make money in the business because, yeah. uh, you know, making 10% commission on booking jazz artists uh after a while you realize you're working so hard and not yeah. making near the amount of money you should be making for the amount of work and knowledge you bring into it that reminds me of another story of yours which you tell and if, that i know from your biographies about the first work that you did booking groups was for was wasn't for yourself you right. went on on your own later but you worked for this guy what was his name abby hoffer uh, abby Hoffer. Hoffer. H O F F E R. And Abby was paying like what? $100 a week or something? Mm. Or next to nothing. Next next to nothing, maybe nothing. And when thought I first you started. would and he said, "Kid, you're not Hey kid, you're not going to make any money at this for 5 years." Right. And then maybe a little bit. He says, "So, so be happy with what you got." Yeah. And then you, you went out cuz you were going to all the clubs and brought all this music into his right. his his joint. You've done your research, John. <laughs> uh what happened in that part of my life, and this is, seems self-indulgent to talk about myself for uh, minutes or hours. Uh, I'm time. telling you, it's entertaining. You know, uh, People can go and turn it off if they want, but they're not yeah. going to. This is great. <laughs> um, I graduated Stony Brook University with a degree in history and journalism. Uh and I couldn't figure out a way for the life of me to get involved in the music business. I went on interviews when I graduated college, even before I gradu- graduated college, to all the record labels. Then I learned a little bit about 
not much, but a little bit about the industry, how the industry worked. And I, I would go to marketing firms or PR firms. Nobody would hire me. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of nepotism yeah. in the business. And, you know, everybody's uncle worked for this place and the, the cousins and the nieces and nephews got jobs and they didn't pay anything. So a lot of it was intern jobs, and I couldn't afford an intern job when I graduated college. Uh, I didn't have family money. You had to go to work. Yeah. And uh, I found a place in Woodside, Queens to live in with a roommate. And I tried to get a job in the music business with no luck at all. Um, And then I was talking to my father, and he said, well, you know, you got a degree in journalism and history, so you're not going to teach history until, until you get an advanced degree. And But you can get a job as a journalist. And I'd been writing a lot in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the ed- arts editor of the Stony Brook Statesman, which came out three times a week. Nice. So and I, I, I hardly ever went to class because I was working at the newspaper, and I would just say to the teachers, you know, I'm working at the newspaper five nights a week, and they pretty much let me do what I needed to do. Right, the journalism courses. Yeah, yeah. even even history oh, courses and yeah. even economics courses, <laughs> I would tell them what, where my time was being spent, and they really cut me a great deal of slack. Yeah. Um, so I spent four years out of college maybe even five years as a journalist working for business magazines and interviewing CEOs of food companies. Food companies, yeah. And that was my main beat, working for trade magazines. I didn't know what a trade magazine was, but talking to my father about how am I going to get a a job at the New York Times? How am I going to get a job at Newsweek or Time or Life? He said, well, maybe you're not up to that yet, but there are all these business magazines, all these trade magazines. You should go interview for those. So that opened my eyes to the fact that you could make a living, not be famous, not have a prestigious journalism job. I thought I was going to be Bob Woodward Uh uh, or Carl Bernstein. Um, But I was writing about ice cream and cheese (laughs) and uh, milk, all milk products products um and i did that for about four years and i was getting into my late 20s and i said well either i'm going to take one more stab at the music business or i'll never forgive myself for not giving it a hundred percent shot yeah and i got a job at the bottom line uh which was a premier variety club maybe mainly a rock and roll club but they did comedy they did jazz they did world music randy brecker and michael brecker played there a lot um i saw sonny rollins there and i saw uncle floyd (laughs) i don't know if anybody knows who uncle floyd is but go look it up uh you were a bouncer or doorman a doorman yeah i I had a bouncer working by my side because i'm you know Five five at the time I was one hundred and twenty five pounds. You're uh, a five five hundred twenty five pound hockey player. 
Yes, I was. Yeah, a college so at least you were a hockey player. player. Yeah. Maybe I was 130 <laughs> on the ice. If you were holding the puck. Yeah. Um, but I had a bouncer who became a very close friend. But, uh, and I'll think of his name. He's been gone a long time. So you saw all these bands. Uh, so I worked there um, for a great guy by the name of Alan Pepper and Stanley, Stanley Sadowski, the two guys who own the bottom line, awesome. who became friends of mine when I became an agent later in life. Uh, and the and the the manager of the club was a guy by the name of Tony Di Giovanni, who was like a, a, a sergeant, a drill sergeant in world in a Vietnam War, and he taught me a lot. Well, he taught me about discipline and how to control a room. Nice. And uh, yeah, uh, so I I I worked as a journalist during the day and at night I worked at the bottom line and slept in the like the tech the tech platform at the bottom line yeah. uh showered at the Y because I didn't want to go back to Queens at right. night because I got off from work at one two in the morning and I had to be somewhere at eight in the morning so uh, did you meet Abby there no no I did not uh I met a lot of people there, but um, and I met a lot of. But you thought I'm, I'm you know, I I need to do something more than be a doorman. Uh, I, yeah, but I, I was to... okay being a doorman for yeah. that. I felt like I was least in the music business. Right. I could convince you myself. Were still writing for the trade magazine. I was writing and and working two jobs, um, and then I stopped the bottom line and some somewhere in between there i got a job at sweet basil's which was a it was a, a real jazz club real uh on seventh avenue south in manhattan and that's where i met abby okay uh and sweet basil's is now what is it still a club? It, it's not a club no anymore. no it's it's, it's stuck around yeah it's stuck around for a good long time and it had amazing jazz seven nights a week and Miles Davis would come in and hear Gil Evans play. Every Monday night, Gil Evans played. Okay. Miles would come every few months, and I, I'd answer the phone, and it was Miles on the phone saying, <laughs> I'll be there in an hour, and I knew where he wanted to sit. Uh-huh. Um, and so I met, and I met Art Blakey there.
Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thanks once again for your presence and your support and supporting the the uh, Jam Session and the Hamptons Jazz Fest and the Jam Session Radio Hour. Coming up in the winter series of the Hamptons Jazz Fest, we have on February 25th, Greg Lewis and his Monk Quartet, and that's going to be at the Parish Art Museum in a black box theater there, and that's going to be a good early evening. And then March 18th at the Southampton Art Center, we have... Manuel Valera and his Cuban Express. On April 1st, we have Bill Collins in, uh, on piano and Craig Handy on saxophone at the Parish Art Museum once again. So the winter series is uh, a bit of a break, but we will come back uh, in big time in the spring and the summer. Hamptons Jazz Fest, this will be our second year, July, August, September. Upwards of 25 different shows, many of them free and all with some absolutely top jazz, um, given some of the people that we've had in the past, like Robbie Coltrane and Piquito uh, de Rivera, Bill Collins, Randy Brecker. Just a host of, of, uh, of great players. So thanks to uh, all who are involved in the Jam Session Radio Hour. Thanks for Rafael Alvarez for putting it together as our sound engineer. Thanks to Klaas Brondahl, our music director, um, and all those others in, who are involved in the jam session. And thank you for the support of our, of our uh, sponsors, uh, Oza Sabbath Architects and uh, Bayard Fenwick. Thanks to WLW for, for having us and for uh, um, bringing us such great uh, entertainment news and talk. Um, so take care. Until next time, this is John Lander for the Jam Session Radio Hour. Stay well and good night.